0: Hi, I'm Gary David.
1: And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds.
0: Dr. Jacqueline Copeland grew up in Philadelphia, which she describes, for anybody who's been there, you know this, as a city of neighborhoods. But just because you have neighborhoods doesn't mean that everyone is actually neighborly. The city of brotherly love is also known for the racial barriers and boundaries that serve as social and cultural dividing lines, separating people in the different worlds. From those early experiences of people watching and trying to understand the dynamics of Philly, She became interested in exploring new worlds and understanding different cultures. Anthropology and philanthropy then became her new home from which she could explore and have a greater
1: impact. And what a great impact she's had. We explore her work in philanthropy around the world, especially on the African continent, with Women in Technology and founding Black Philanthropy Month. This work is recognized by the UN in over 30 governmental bodies, and the Black Philanthropy Month has now engaged over 18 million people, so it's, it's really quite incredible to see. Dr. Copeland shares with us her passion for creating sustainable social justice movements and why the social sciences are essential to building a better world. Some of her projects have also included helping the Federal Reserve Bank meet the capital financing needs of religious minorities, assisting corporate social responsibility efforts, and aiding in capacity building for grassroots and social innovators. And finally, she helps us understand how we can get started in philanthropy, social innovation, and social movements through giving our time, talent, or treasure, or all of the above. Without further ado, let's get to it.
0: That was um, on around technology was unsuccessful because of the technology.
2: Well, you know, sometimes that happens.
0: Does <laughs> happen? That is true. And I, I, I do. I, I, I don't know if you remember how we got in touch with each other. But it oh, happened.
2: I do. I answered. Uh, you posed an interesting question, and I have been thinking about it, and I answered.
0: You're on LinkedIn, it was like, all, yeah, all on LinkedIn, all. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've, I've, I, I, I frequently, when people comment on my LinkedIn, number one, I'm always surprised that anybody reads anything I say. Number two who these people are and how they got connected. And that's when I started looking at your background and was just really amazed at all the all the various work that you have done. So that's why I thought, wow, we got to get her on. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and chat with us. Well, thanks for your interest. How did you end up in anthropology to begin with? It's one of those questions I often wonder about myself is how does one end up in, a, in sociology as a sociology program? What yeah. – of bringing you to become uh, both your master's in anthropology, but also getting a PhD in anthropology?
2: Um, well, I don't know how much time we actually have.
0: <laughs> I have all the time in the world. I'm just <laughs> sitting here at my house. I, I know, maybe, know,
2: but... <laughs> <laughs> um, so a couple of different phases that probably destined me... In some ways, um, to be an anthropologist. So, as a kid, I grew up in a Pentecostal household and was sent to Catholic schools. Mm. And I did not have the term for it, but it was—I navigated two radically different worlds on a daily basis. And um, in urban Philly, there just—it was—it's called a city of neighborhoods, and I would often just for entertainment, go downtown and to parks and watch people and write stories about them. So I was a writer. I was a people watcher. I um, found it very interesting to kind of observe myself in my different school settings and come up with different strategies for how I was going to address some of the, let's just say, cultural clashes. That would routinely happen um, in that Pentecostal Catholic school experience. Hmm. Then, have, uh, uh, sorry, good. Go, ahead. go ahead. oh, uh, go ahead if you have a question about that. Because I was, I was just
1: curious. I was curious. Did you do? You Had did you have other friends that were also in this Pentecostal Catholic divide? I don't know if it divides the right term, but
2: <laughs> sometimes it was. Um, not not really i mean i ha I had classmates, but I don't think they had a seriously Pentecostal mother mm-hmm. so it was a it not i didn't really have a support group or network, and so pretty much basically studying. And strategizing how I was gonna make it across the two worlds was um how I coped with it and got the best out of it. So it by the time
0: like Hm I was just gonna say it does seem like for a lot of us who end up in the people watching business that it, it really does come from, at least for me, some kind of I wouldn't say escape. But some kind of like looking for a connection outside of that, which we had experienced at home, <laughs> you know, um, or this element of trying to connect with groups other than the ones that we're constantly surrounded in and really trying to engage those people where they live and what makes their reality or their lived experiences unique to them.
2: Uh, yeah, I think that's probably um Yeah, I think there's probably some truth in that. The other piece of it is at the same time, um, there was a degree of uh, inter-ethnic conflict and racism that I was experiencing as a youngster. And I thought I was a pretty nice person. And frankly, I just couldn't understand how somebody who didn't know anything about me could just hate me because of the way I looked. It was baffling to me as a kid. And so, um, you know, that was something I was studying as well. And then at the same time, um, we were in a middle class neighborhood that was disintegrating because of deindustrialization, lower incomes, families breaking up, the infiltration of different kinds of drugs in the neighborhood. But very interestingly to me, a block that was adjacent to mine was doing fine. And my my idyllic neighborhood as a kid slowly disintegrated. And that left a real impression on me. I felt like there were these invisible forces that were shaping the neighborhood. And I didn't understand what they were. And I needed to find, I needed to learn what allowed the adjacent neighborhood—it wasn't even a neighborhood; it was just a block—to um, mm-hmm. do well, and our block to not do well, at a, as um, for the most part. And so, I had all these questions in my head about religion and society and identity and race and how communities develop. And a very strong desire to, um, to go to a city that I felt was more um, worldly, uh, more. And although Philadelphia is, of course, a major um, city, I knew it mostly through the lens of my neighborhood. So ended up, I only wanted to go to Georgetown um, and was lucky to get in. And being in D.C. opened up a whole new world. And at the university, uh, to fast forward pretty quickly, I, um, I took a re- anthropology of religion class with this brilliant mm-hmm. woman who got her, um, Betty Andretta, who got her PhD from University of Pennsylvania. And I remember studying the work of Anthony Wallace in particular. And it just gave me a framework to understand all of these childhood experiences, especially um, the role of religion and social change and society and uh, historically. And as a liberal arts uh, major, uh, I, was, I was hooked. I was an English and literature comparative literature major. And uh, a lot of the studying we were doing was looking at a person's individual history and how that influenced their work. And um, as just that anthropology of religion class gave me, I guess, a a conceptual framework to understand people and history and culture in society from different points of view. Um, Betty Andretta was an Africanist, And so a lot of her work was influenced by her ethnography in South Sudan. Hmm. And then um, I got interested, well, I was always interested uh, in Africa and history, especially from a childhood uh, experience I was in. I really loved history. I was in AP history. And I remember... I think I uh, was in one year Catholic high school and we were studying American colonial history, and I just raised my hand and I just had an epiphany in class. I said, so did George Washington or Thomas Jefferson own slaves? Because it wasn't mentioned in the textbook. And I right. sincerely wanted to know. And the teacher got upset with me.
0: Mm, right.
2: And right. um She said I was trying to cause trouble, and um, she said they were men of their times, but we don't have to write about that in a history book. And for me, that was a huge aha moment. It's like, wow, certain people write history, and then that Mm -hmm. becomes official, even if it's a lie, and they're not telling me the truth. They're not telling any of us the truth. And I just I took a real it's just my personality. I felt as if this this education is just a fraud. I said like right. basic historical information and you're the teacher. And I but it got in it got in my head the notion that maybe one day I might write books and get to write my perspective on history,
0: right? We used to say the same thing about my grandfather, you know, during Thanksgiving when he would go off on one of his rants. Well, grandpa's just a man of his time, you know. (laughs) Uh
2: Yeah, (laughs) that was uh, actually I had never heard that term (laughs) until that teacher who I loved um, made that statement. And I was just so shocked and disappointed in her um, Hmm. because she was a role model you know, about her reaction and that I would be in trouble for asking a question in an educational setting. And Mm -hmm. so anyway, um, I had all of these interests and aspirations and really it was Georgetown, despite challenges there, that allowed me to fully explore them with some really brilliant professors. Um, And then in particular, besides Betty, there was a Another Africanist anthropologist, Gwen Michael, um, who uh, was also uh, involved in their African Studies program, which was only like two or three years old at the time. And one had to do a, a year of study in Africa and original research um, to earn an African Studies Degree because by this time I declared that as a um, another major as well, Hmm. and so I was sent to Nigeria to a town considered the center of creation for Yoruba people called Ilé Ife, and I did my first ethnographic study at age nineteen. Incredible. Which was wow. a comparative study of African American and Yoruba Pentecostalism, in particular a um, a form of Pentecostalism that they call Aladura, which is a Yoruba word for ecstatic prayer that transforms life and consciousness. And um, so uh, then I got really interested in. Yoruba people, um, saw, um, didn't understand it all, but saw a lot of parallels, at least in worship, um, and broadly speaking culture between, uh, African Americans, um, not just African Americans, Cuban Americans, because the Yoruba, especially during the 19th century, had so many people who were, um, who were transported uh, in the slave trade through the Middle Passage. In fact, I later learned that some estimates claim that 25 to 30 percent of Americans have Yoruba ancestry. Wow. And I just I became fascinated with how it was that through their religion and the implicit philosophies, epistemologies, um the Yoruba have had such strong cultural retentions in the New World. Hmm. Uh in the in the Caribbean, in the US, and in Latin America, in Cuba, uh in Santeria, uh people even speak in Yoruba. They don't know what it means, but it's like Yoruba language from the nineteenth century. And, and so at, I got really fascinated, and one of the foremost anthropologists of Yoruba religion is a woman named Sandra Barnes who was a professor at university an anthropology professor at University of Pennsylvania and um, I wanted to go study with her. I had my mind I, um, I came back to the us and I also saw You know, very serious poverty. I grew up uh, in some in some uh, very low income conditions, but I had never um, at that time experienced saw poverty like I saw it in Nigeria. And so, between my childhood experience, my Nigerian experience, sort of almost like my realization, almost like conversion to anthropology, realizing. I have been doing a kind of proto anthropology all my life without the the name for it. Um, my desire, my understanding that um, I could be an anthropologist and study culture, even though I didn't fit the social profile of a, a traditional anthropologist. I had these uh, two women um, who were. Uh, actually mentoring and developing uh me who were very uh they they were simply brilliant and it was so inspirational so by the time i graduated college i had decided that i wanted to be trained uh to be able to do community development across cultures so i only applied to university of Pennsylvania. And it's doctoral program in anthropology. And, but I also applied at the same time to the design school because I figured I needed a master's in urban planning and design to be able to um, apply culture in positive ways to improve, uh, to address social justice uh, issues and um, poverty. Hmm. And so that was the beginning of that career, and then uh, at the Wharton School, um, I was lucky I got in because that was the only school like I applied to, and it was really competitive. But I think the fact that I had written a you know a full blown ethnography at such a young age really helped me.
0: Hmm. Um, I was going to uh, say also that I mean when you're when you're going to Nigeria at 19, it's like a pretty pretty. Impressive version of study abroad.
2: Oh, uh, Yeah, okay. <laughs> I, you know, I, right. I used to read all these adventures when I was a kid. I always fancied myself as getting out of my neighborhood and giving back and traveling the world and meeting other people when I discovered uh, that there was a field that basically did that it it <laughs> revolutionized my world i said this is so cool i'm gonna do this for sure
0: right. and that's when people ask me what's the difference between sociology and anthropology and i always say anthropologists go to much cooler places than sociologists do that's generally yeah, we we're, you know someone says like where did you do your ethnography i said detroit and like oh okay that's cool and then Yeah, yeah well,
2: there, oh. there's something to that as well, but so, there's
0: just... Like I, it's yeah, it's different. I mean, Adam was in was in Peru. I mean, you're in Nigeria. And I was in liquor stores in Detroit, which has its own kind of unique experience to it. But Some culture, too, yeah. Like the traveling someplace else. Well, I'll
2: tell you one thing about it now that it seems that things fall apart, truly, just like a Ache- Achebe said.
0: Right.
2: Mm-hmm. Um Living in communities that have very tenuous infrastructure, whether it's political, financial, um, uh, uh, basic services like electricity and running water. It, it, when you do that long enough, situations like the crisis we're in right now with this pandemic, right. I will say, I don't know whether it's residual trauma. what it is but it just gives you a totally different perspective i'm i i am concerned about the impact on society but for me personally i just i mean nigeria was under a dictatorship and there would be bursts of violence and i saw things i should no person should ever see or experience and i um it has made me very good in a crisis because my my bar <laughs> for what a crisis is is much lower than what we're
0: experiencing now. Hmm. I did, you know, it reminds me. you really do think about what what people get thrown into a loop about. And I was at the grocery store the other morning, and they were completely out of yeast. They were completely out of flour. However, you could buy a lot of loaves of bread. And so like the bread aisle was full. You just couldn't buy the stuff to make the bread. All you hear people talk about is, oh my God, there's no yeast and there's no flour. People are buying yeast and flour. It's all gone. Not mentioning the fact that the bread aisle is fully stocked.
2: Yeah, it's just different. um, When you are in a situation where food security is a question and you see how humanity can, you have seen how humanity can rise to the occasion and um, yeah, I just deeply inspired by the ability of Nigerian people to be brilliant and survive and what that says about the human spirit and how blessed we are to have to, to have a home to stay in, hmm, right. to still have electricity, running water and some food if it's just bread some days and I, I really hope that we can understand how um, blessed we still are and how we need to do much much better by people who are more vulnerable hmm. so um, I guess I got the social justice I had the social justice gene but by the time I came out of uh Nigeria. I decided I was gonna do this cross i called it cross cultural community development, and I was gonna be the person who helped diverse people um survive and thrive and what was even then becoming um uh obviously global economy and people didn't know how it was going to unfold. And like when I was a a kid and all the factories started closing in Philly and the men had no work and families started breaking apart, how could I help people see and address these invisible hands Hmm. of the market that were setting near fate and give people some agency to do something about it. And so that's what I try to do. Right. Hmm. Basically, to uh, might... day.
1: And as, as I was going to ask too, because it makes me think that, um, you know, a lot of your work, you know, kind of looking at your biography and, and some of the, 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 the ton of amazing projects you've worked on, like philanthropy seems like it's been one of these, these instruments, these tools that you've, you've leveraged, um, as a way to, you know, kind of shift those invisible hands, as it were. Um, did you find philanthropy as a, as a, as did that kind of come out of your training with in the in the you know civic and urban design stuff and anthropology, or is this kind of a, a tool that you found? Because you've done amazing work at the Philadelphia Foundation, um, you know, and you've worked with philanthropical services at U.S. Bank and private client group. You know, you've you've founded a group. Copeland Carson Associates. I'm just naming a bunch of like amazing things that <laughs> that we can see. Um, and that a lot of this it it seems like a lot of this work in philanthropy is around sort of reshifting the, the balance of power in terms of access to capital, access to uh, resources for for marginalized populations. Um, and sure enough, you got yeah, it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. I wonder. I tell us, yeah, some of your favorite projects that came out of this. Yeah.
2: Yeah, but even even before it came became proj- um, a project or a profession, I very much remember as a teenager, and by, the, by this time, my mom was raising us alone and we were struggling. Mm. And I said, you know, I know I'm supposed to go to college and I'm supposed to be in the world and I'm not going to stay stuck. But I felt the neighborhood was really, it had been lovely and then it was, Things were happening that were very dangerous, and I I really remember the feeling of like I was suffocating,
0: right?
2: And that and so, um, but we had no money, and so <clears throat> I understood. And I think it was my older cousin, this um, who's deceased, brilliant woman, had um maybe twenty years older than me, an MBA, and. A, she was a registered nurse and had done all of these amazing things and owned a business. And she said to me, you know, if you get A's, there will be strangers who will give you money to go to school. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, but they, they don't meet know me. She said, these are just people who have more money than they need. And so they they share it. Hmm. With people they don't know, so those people can do things with their their lives. And she said, um, people call it giving. Some people call it philanthropy, but you can get scholarships, hmm. okay? And that's what I did. I mean, I was I was always studying and getting good grades anyway. But then I realized, oh, if I get an A, I can apply. If I get good grades, I can apply for this funding that will give me resources to go to school. Because there, you know, my family had like a, a we were struggling to eat sometimes, to tell you the truth. And so, I certainly wasn't going to even have money to go go to Georgetown University. And so, um, that's what I did. I. S- Studied, like my life depended on it because I felt like it did. I applied for scholarships and that was that was my second experience of philanthropy. Mm. Looking back on it, I realized that my family, they were philanthropists as well. Even though they didn't have a lot of money, they were always giving to somebody in need right. or sharing food or right. time, talent. Or a treasure. Um, they were all nurses and and teachers, and there was just this culture of caring that allowed people in dire circumstances to feel supported. That maybe their dreams were possible, and um, I think those two experiences of growing up in a very caring uh, family, and then these strangers who funded. My education at Georgetown and then the feeling that I needed to give back myself kind of led me to philanthropy. And then there was a very specific experience as a graduate student. There was a think tank at Wharton and I worked for them and stayed there for eight years um, and um, they actually provided program design and evaluation services to foundations across the U.S. And one of my one of uh, my clients and I had to design, I remember, an evaluation to help them determine when they had um, promoted community participation and empowerment, which was to me an ethnographic exercise so yeah. that that eight years while I was in graduate school in an anthropology doctoral program and then also in the urban design program I would take basically work projects and make them I would do the method methodology in urban design to solve the problem and then I would do the, um, the theory and the conceptual frameworks in my anthropology classes and then i would um use use that to write proposals to get uh contracts at my job and i did really well so that was all an experience a way to help me tra- uh, work across these different fields and translate anthropology into practical terms and mm-hmm. because most of the clients were foundations. And I ended up working at the Philly Foundation. That's how I got involved in philanthropy as a professional. And yes, I've uh, subsequently probably worked with almost every type of philanthropy imaginable. A lot of my scholarship, as you've probably seen, has been documenting diaspora philanthropy and immigrant Uh, communities and just diversity in philanthropy, which is a big um, practical interest in a nonprofit fundraising sector as uh, nonprofits need to find and access new uh, forms of of giving um, and also engage those communities just in the general civic improvement and social justice uh, process. So yes, that's a huge um, focus area, which is also morphed into a broader uh, study of social impact funding, including mm-hmm. philanthropy, social impact investing, and even some forms of venture capital funding and it's so it's not money for money's sake it's just even based on my early story. I have understood that it's really hard to make change without money mm-hmm. and so um, and then the people that I want to impact don't have money um, they have all have many other forms of capital and resources, but how do you get people access? To the economic opportunity they need in societies which are often um, set up to deny them opportunity because they're poor, or they're not the right gender, or the right sexual orientation, right. or uh-huh. ethnicity, or race, or whatever it happens to be. There is always something in some, you know, regardless of where you're working. So hmm. that's well, basically uh, what I do to this day.
0: One of the things that I, in my (laughs) dissertation work, was on Arab owned liquor stores in Detroit. And so I was looking at. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I thought so. It was was fascinating. You know, one of the things that was part of that research was what we may call these um, rotating credit associations. And many immigrant groups, when they come to another country, they are able to pool their resources uh, in these these kinds of, you know, uh, communities, savings communities. Where by each person having a little bit, they're able to then, based on trust and based on membership into their group, no contracts, are able to spread out that wealth so people can start businesses. And, you know, in looking at that, you you start to recognize how those who come over with very little are able to then generate a lot of access to resources because they can't get money from banks either. And one of, the, one of the interesting things about this, and I will be fascinated to get your take on it, when looking at African-American communities, who were, they were shut out from lending from ma- mainstream institutions like banks. They couldn't go to banks and get money to start a business. That was not going to happen. They lacked equity because they lacked homeownership. So there were no traditional, quote-unquote, traditional American ra- avenues of getting money. They also adopted indiv- American ideas of individualism, which are you don't borrow money from friends and family, you make it on your own. You know, So that they were kind of like doubly marginalized in terms of, on the one hand, they couldn't get money from banks. On the other hand, they weren't leveraging community resources either through, for whatever reason, through adopting this individualistic ideology or... Because of some other set of you know socio-cultural factors, historical factors that made that difficult.
2: Yeah, and so they were I, I, yeah, I think you're. I think you're right in many ways, and I do think, I do think that um, there is a hidden in plain view flip side to that history, though that I've encountered because I've been looking at it from a philanthropic lens and also um, from the uh, also accessing oral history. So first of all, um, African, um, the African diaspora in the U S you can find in the historical record. uh, Remember how I was talking about the influence of the Yoruba. Mm
0: -hmm, So in the,
2: the Caribbean and even in the U.S., you will find these, um, I call them rotating community funds because they can be used for private enterprise or community projects. Right, 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 um, right. That the Yoruba used to call a susus in Jamaica. Um, they're documented as early as the 18th century uh, as susus. And it's the same concept of um, a group of people getting together and pulling their resources for some greater good project right. business, what have you. And I've written about this in a couple of um, studies. In the African American community, the church served that purpose, okay? where mm-hmm. some part of the the ties and often the church, was the only institution that was wholly owned and controlled by the black community. And so it was understood that if you wanted to start a business or um, you had an emergency, that part of tithes would be set aside into an emergency or a community fund that could be accessed by members of the church. There are now gotcha. of studies about this. In addition, there is an entire history of um, uh, credit associations and banks that African-Americans created on their own because part of American history is the the centuries-old redlining of people of African descent. And so there is a whole history of uh, social banking uh, an enterprise that, um, if you're interested, I'll send you some of it, that is very, very inspiring um, because it is what enabled a African American middle class to emerge from some pretty um, oppressive circumstances.
0: And One of the books I like, I don't know if, <laughs> if you're familiar with it, is by a gentleman named John Sibley Butler called Entrepreneurship and Self-Help Among Black Americans. And he goes into a lot of that that history of insurance groups and in, I think it was in North Carolina or of course, you know, Black Wall Street in Tulsa or you know and 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 when these things would get running and start to have some success, they would be, you know, cut destroyed, cut off, cut off, destroyed mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean
2: sometimes whole you know you know the history uh, you mentioned Tulsa so yes sometimes these institutions would would fund a critical mass of businesses in a town that allowed a segregated but distinctive middle class section black middle class section of town and there's this 20th century history of um the destruction of these towns literally through burning and looting Uh, etc. And so I I hear you that, yes, uh, people were locked out, but people also, what's always inspired me is that people never gave up. People found a way, often rooted in their heritage, to pull dreams and money. Um, And that's really, um, African-American women have the highest level of entrepreneurship in the country, although we get the lowest level of funding. Um, to this day, and that is largely happening because um, self-funding, family funding, indigenous funding. There certainly needs to be more equity in funding, but um, that entrepreneurial spirit, in uh, um, which is uh, not represented in the stereotypes, is alive well. And leading the future.
1: I think I think what's interesting about this too is, is that so you've you've kind of also moved this into this really interesting space of, of also tech and diversity, too, right? Which is it's interesting because on on one level, you know, I you can like kind of kind of clearly see this connection between um, you know, urban design and anthropology moving into philanthropy. And then tech is this really interesting space because like when you say the word venture capital, it feels somehow different than a philanthropic endeavor, but I think, you know, what your work has demonstrated is that they're not incredibly, there's not, not these different spaces necessarily, right? It's like still framed around this question of how do we more equitably distribute funds and capital, both social, you know, financial. And um, I don't know, so I, I'd love you to kind of break down that experience too, of how you decided to, to move into tech, you know, at the Anita B Foundation, um, as well as some of your other projects. And because um, I think that tech is, is also one of the interesting new spaces that, um is in dire need of of more you know diverse work and diverse perspectives um, and so I'd love to hear a bit about how your work is is moving into that space uh, as well,
2: yeah, so two things I do want people to get opportunity and acts just the ability to realize their full potential access to capital, but i it part of my reason for being is. To build a culture of, of caring, an economy that's based on social responsibility. So I do want to say that. And I think mm-hmm. about that a lot, especially given my journey. How can I be authentic to where I've come from and ensure that I at least try to empower other people instead of saying, okay, I got, I got mine. Mm-hmm. Everything is okay, and I I I, I work. I tr- I really try to uh, s- understand that every uh, success I have is a result of the sacrifice of ancestors, mentors, teachers, mm-hmm. those those strangers who gave me money to go to school, <laughs> and I just I owe big time, and so that is. That is the, tail, the tailwind of everything I do. Oh, I mm-hmm. just want to say that. I really believe it. And so yeah, exactly. to, to me, like an anthropological text, I have an anthropological take on tech. To me, mm-hmm. uh, stone tools, right? We, uh, we can't get through right. anthropology yeah. without studying all about stone tools how to make stone tools. I don't know if you remember your early graduate school years. Adam. I, <laughs> <laughs> we had to make stone tools. I, uh, I be, yeah. So I Adam, had, to, did you make stone tools I,
1: in my undergraduate? Yeah, we had a Flint. I'm from Texas. We we had a Flint Knapper come and he, he did teach us a little bit of how to make them. It's very,
0: it's very cool. Yeah. We never made it. We made, we made Excel spreadsheets as a, as a sociology <laughs> undergraduate. We never made stone tools.
1: Well, that's why anthropology is, is you know, more hands-on, I guess. That's cooler.
0: <laughs> Way cool. Yeah. And so, um,
2: so that's my perspective on it, right? And so I've always known that there are m- multiple factors that drive society. And I'm very interested in evolution and social hmm. change. And it's just really, it became especially obvious to me when I moved here And I worked with a technology think tank and did some work as a futurist at this place called Institute for the Future. Hmm. And just got much more attuned around how digital technology in particular is influencing society, even quickening the pace at which change happens. Um, just in ways that I think we're just even changing what it is to be human and mm-hmm. how we evolve. And so, and then we had clients that included uh, some of the big tech companies and we would do future studies for them. Because mm-hmm. um, it's where I learned this concept of um, VUCA World, V-U-C-A. I don't know if you're familiar with it. No, I'm not. But that yeah, so <clears throat> uh, the military and a lot of companies um and some governments have come to the conclusion that the world is more volatile, is probably more volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous than ever before in human history. And they've actually created a word hmm. for this era called a a, a VUCA world. If you googled it, you would find it all over. And so how do you plan? How do you create a strategic plan for your business or the military or any kind of Hmm. institution where all bets are off and everything you thought was true about how time work and the world work is different. Time is compressed. Hmm. Um, you know the 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 world has shrunk and the global the global village is in our right in our backyards you mm-hmm, can right. you can you can share money in a in a nanosecond uh with a poor villager in any part of the world from the wealthiest country on the planet mm-hmm. and so I, I that was about 14 15 years ago no i worked there maybe Yeah, something like that. I don't remember, but in that time frame. And so that is how I really got involved in digital technology um, and tech issues and really thinking and writing a lot about how different parts of our world were changing and translating that for the field of philanthropy and and, and nonprofits as we all try to adjust. To these brave new worlds like this world of the pandemic, which has got the nonprofit sector and everybody else in an economic uh, tailspin where in just what one, two weeks, everything's changed. Right. Mm -hmm. And that that change will have a long, long shelf life that is unfolding in ways that we don't no but even in uh, undergrad for some reason and i i, I just um i always i like tinkering with technology so i one of my jobs as an undergrad is i would kind of hire myself out to companies that were trying to understand at that time it was computers and digitizing i took coding classes at georgetown oh, wow um i um I'm often the person, like at Philadelphia Foundation, um, I introduce their very first uh, grant making platform uh, to digitize um, all of the grant making. I remember some team members feeling threatened that, quote, computers were going to take over. And (laughs) I I was the cultural translator to um, engage people. In the adoption of that um, of that software, but also working with the tech company to adapt the technology to their their needs. So it's always been an interest and a capacity. And um, just last year, um, the bodies who make this decision have um, classified design and architecture as technical fields. So I'm actually yeah. a technologist. I just didn't. <laughs> Know it.
0: congratulations
2: <laughs> that's right has that so, changed
0: like the invitations to get to dinner parties or anything now that you have technologist as a title that you can
2: well i i use it when i need to right <laughs> um, but, uh, but that's to say i'm really technologist in like the study of it as well not just right. the application uh of it and um so, yeah, uh, and then this particular organization, AnitaB.org, just doesn't work on tech for tech's sake. It was founded about 25 years ago very, by a very pioneering computer scientist named Anita Borg. And Anita Borg was struck by the fact that she and a handful of women were typically the only women at um, technical conferences, severely underrepresented at, in the field of technology and she organized the institute which is now called AnitaB.org for short right. as a way to help technology ensure that it represented the markets for which it was building technology in fact that's our mission hmm. and um, it's global Uh, Because this is a challenge facing women across the world. It's a subset of the women's rights and empowerment movement. And given how influential technology is on every aspect of our life, our economy, our future, It's very important that diverse people not only have access to technology, but they are able to shape it. So let me give you a very current example. There's this brilliant woman who's an MIT um, doctoral student in computer science who has started something called the AI Justice League. Her name is Joy Bolomwini. She's also a uh, poet and spoken word artist. And in doing her research, she discovered that uh, facial recognition did not pick her up because she was dark skinned. And Mm -hmm. she actually started needing to do her research with a white mask on so that she could be seen. Really? Yes, and, and this is literally <laughs> true. She's, she's a brilliant scientist. Everything I do
0: true. recall hearing something about this, actually.
2: Yeah. yeah, and so she started this organization. She did this spoken word piece called AI, Ain't I a Woman, which is um, <laughs> awesome. kind of a play on the famous Sojourner Truth uh, speech mm-hmm. about um, Black womanhood. Her further research showed that Black women are awesome, often perceived as men or Apes by AI. Wow. Recognition, right. She and um, just did a, a film that was at Sundance Film Festival that's getting great accolades called um, Coded Bias, which documents the various ways that um, artificial intelligence has biases against women and people of color and others that reduce their access to services. Um, Basic equity and abuses can abuse human rights. Uh, She calls big tech companies to task over how they design this AI with um, implicit uh, biases. And so that's just a concrete, a study just came out two studies that show how AI um, reduces African-American access to certain uh, medical treatments due to implicit biases in the algorithms. Oh, oh, her organization is called the Algorithmic Justice League. And then um, also, uh, same is true with even Siri and speech recognition. And I always wondered why I have to code switch to get Siri to understand what I'm
0: saying.
2: Mm. (laughs) But but now this study just came out last week. I have a better understanding because I have like, I have um, my family is from the South Carolina, South Carolina, Charleston area, but then I lived in Nigeria and Minnesota. And so I, I just have a version of my accent is, is unusual, I guess. And so, um, there's this whole new way that technology is potentially empowering us as people and at the same time oppressing us. And you know,
0: it reminds me of, it was real quick, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I teach a <coughs> course on criminal justice All right. and this whole idea about predictive policing, right? That we can guess, we, we know where crime is going to happen before yeah. it happens because we have the data. Well, how, well, how do you have that data? That's because you have, you know, greater patrols going on, or you have, you know, profiling, et cetera, et cetera, and so the bias is built into the system because it's built out of the practices that existed before its creation. Yes, and, so it's just and that's really-
2: basically it. Um, that uh, most of these AI tools they learn from Google and other online resources, and those encode the biases of society. And so these these high-tech tools are, are perpetuating a high-tech era of bias that we have been trying to overcome as a country and a world for some time. And so um, our organization also believes that if you have more diverse people building the technology in the first place, these kinds of biases would be less likely to exist. So, for example, self-driving cars have a hard time seeing dark skin. Mm. You think about that for a minute. Yeah, because and, and dark- what they, the real humans that they right. are tr- trained to see have lighter skin.
0: Mhm.
2: And so it's a really dangerous brave new world you know, in terms of increasing income inequality, um, the degradation of our natural environment which is at the backdrop of this this pandemic we're experiencing right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then an overlay of technology that is not created and um, consumed equitably can either compound these postmodern challenges or um, tech can be used for good, but tech has to be deliberately designed to be used for good. And so that's a lot of what I work on is trying to get diverse women of all backgrounds, however defined, a seat at the table or building their own tables. And in fact, uh, what we're trying to do is accelerate equity between men and women in tech. In five years, we nicknamed that effort 50-50 by 2025. Hmm. And that would mean equity in hiring, in pay, in retention, including promotion, uh, funding and then in just power and leadership opportunities because tech is uh leading the future in ways that I don't think most people fully understand and we need to get control of it and we need to have all voices and talents at involved so that it helps humanity and and Helps actually helps us save the planet.
0: It, make, it makes me think about this, um, you know, the old diversity and inclusion example of, you know, diversity is being allowed to have a seat at the table. Inclusion is being able to eat while you're sitting there. And I know that you're going a step further, which is the ability to set the menu, right? right. So I just, okay. I'm just not eating what it is that you're, you're laying out there. I get a chance to say what I think the menu should be at the outset.
2: And not only that, I get to feed somebody who wasn't invited.
0: Hmm. Right. Yeah. I get to decide also who's going to be on the guest list. That's right. Hmm. Right.
1: I like that. I, I think maybe so what, you know, I'd love to hear just some ways that if if folks want to get involved, either with the Anita B Foundation or um, you know, they want to learn more about this work, how can they how can they do that?
2: Well, they can go to our website, anitab.org. Um, and the multiple ways, but one way that could, they could immediately help is we're very concerned about everyone's ability to survive and thrive in this pandemic. But in particular, we want women, women of diverse backgrounds to stay in the field and they're under great pressures right now. So for example, we have been getting a lot of emergency requests from young women who are. um, in college or boot camps or uh, they have clothes, they have to go home. They, you know, they were barely making it in school. You know, there are a lot of hungry college students. Um, And so we are trying to find, uh, we've created a fund called the Tech Journeys Emergency Fund Hmm. to provide emergency uh, support to students so that they can stay in school and on their educational path through this uh, unfolding pandemic crisis. Mm. So that's That's one different way that people can help. And I think the typical um, emergency grant is about $600, but that can get a woman home. That can um, get a woman a laptop. I mean, just so many basic or internet access, which they had at school, but they're not at school anymore. Um, Food. Uh, and so we're trying to respond to uh that crisis we're there we also um convene the world's largest um celebration of women in tech called the Grace Hopper Celebration i highly recommend um learning about the celebration which feels like a united nations of women in tech has about women from Eighty countries. Um, we will have at least thirty thousand people at the wow. event uh, this year, and probably seven to eight thousand people at our event in um, Bangalore, India, which would be in its eleventh year. And so there are opportunities to get directly involved in the conference as a volunteer, as a participant. Um, There are some scholarships available, so I would recommend that. We also do smaller events throughout the year. We have um, local networks of women in tech in about um, 40 communities worldwide, everywhere from Australia and New Zealand to um, various parts of uh, Africa. And um, Asia. And so there is a women's tech affinity group uh, in many major cities in the world providing peer support. We're also um, unveiling a whole new array of virtual uh, services and engagement tools given the world we're living in right now. And so your source of information for how to connect to the Women in Tech movement is anitab.org. And feel free to reach out to any one of the team members listed as a key contact for our various programs and uh, services. I'm also a volunteer with a group I started called the Women Invested to Save Earth Fund. Hmm. and we find uh women climate impact technologists working in low income communities throughout the um well actually in uh, Africa, Australia, Brazil and low income communities like Flint and um American Indian reservations in the US hmm. uh and we we fund them so that um We fund them um, with a kind of approach that I call eco health and tech. And so these are technologies that address global warming and environmental degradation, but also create economic opportunity and um, improve um, public health and um, involve women in a substantive way. And so uh we have found a really promising group of projects throughout the world um that we are excited uh to support especially in those communities that are hit hardest by the impacts of global warming. So to give you an example, there's a little, there's a project in South Africa where um and this is women benefiting um not only women-led, but um, this particular township has one of the highest murder and um, rates of rape uh, in the world. And the founder of the organization, which is called the Light Institute, has um, Decided that one of the reasons is that there are no streetlights and, a, and a mm-hmm. bad things happen in alleys in the dark, and women in particular are victimized. Mm-hmm. And so, what he's done, and he's an engineer by background, is he's created a very easy to install streetlight that also has Wi Fi built into it mm-hmm. that's made out of recycled materials and discarded sugarcane waste. Hmm. And um, is powered by solar. And oh, yeah. he hires lower income women to help construct them. He also has a school that teaches both boys and girls in living in these townships um, technology. Uh, and um, he uh, in the uh, parts of the township where he's erected these uh, lights. Uh, The murder and rapes have gone down precipitously, thereby impacting the health of women in the broader community. And then his project provides jobs for uh, these women who help with the construction of the lights. And so it's like a quadruple bottom line uh, impact, global warming um, and renewable renewables. uh, economic opportunity uh, p- and public health, and then his own financial bottom line. But the world doesn't know about him, right? Uh-huh. And, and that is an issue that affects desperately poor communities everywhere. And so, what we're trying to do is find projects like that with a little bit of money uh, can um, really do great things and with more visibility. Be um, funded by others as well and scaled and replicated to produce affordable, uh, affordable and accessible uh, eco-health solutions that save the planet and people's livelihoods.
1: That's incredible. And this, this, I mean, thank you for sharing all this and your story too. This has provided a, if I may borrow the metaphor too, a light in, in dark times um, of, of so much of good work that that's out there that, and that um, that you're involved with and, and helping, you know, show the world too. And so hopefully we can share a little bit here on this podcast too. <laughs> Helps spread the word a little bit as well. Um, well, yeah.
2: again, thanks for your, your interest. And um, there are a lot of good people out there despite the challenges That we're all facing, and it just gives me a great deal of uh, hope and optimism that we have a choice. And if we pull pull our ideas and resources together, we can – I really mean it. It sounds like a slogan, but we can create the future we want.
1: Mm.
2: We don't have to be victims of our circumstances.
0: Mm. We need slogans, too. That's okay. We can be a slogan.
2: (laughs) Well, it's like Margaret Mead said, right? Never doubt the capacity of a small group of committed. I'm just gonna say people Mm -hmm. to change the world because it's the only thing that ever has.
1: Only thing that ever has. That's right. Yeah, and that is a truth. We want to thank Dr. Jacqueline Copeland for joining us and sharing her story or her story of building a life and impact through her work as an anthropologist and philanthropist. It was inspirational and motivational and really what we need more than ever right now. If you want to find out, if you want to find out more about her work and making a difference, check out our show notes for more details, as well as how you can follow Dr. Copeland.
0: And as always, you can communicate directly with us at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We always love to get your letters, your thoughts, your suggestions, your encouragement, always welcome and everything that you enjoy about experience by design podcast. We enjoy bringing it to you and we really enjoy hearing back from you. So make sure you reach out and let us know what you're thinking about the shows. If you want to subscribe to join the EXD community, you can always head over to our website at experiencexdesign.com. Subscribe. Don't cost nothing. And you can always stay on top of the EXD news. You can also go over to LinkedIn and join the EXD community there as well to be part of the conversation. So with that, everyone stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll see you next time on Experience by Design.